Hello and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. I am a medical oncologist and I specialize in treating women with breast and gynecologic cancer. Today my guest is Dr. Tally Lando Aronoff. She's a full-time pediatric ENT surgeon, a mom of three young girls, and a breast cancer survivor. Her story began when she felt a lump in her breast the night before her father was due to have surgery for a malignant brain tumor. On today's episode, she talks about the journey that ensued, how she decided on her course of treatment, her experience of being a physician and a mother while going through cancer treatment, and the effects that it had on her life both during and after treatment. She also wrote an incredible book called Hell and Back. In this book, she uses small vignettes to tell her story in a way that will make you laugh and cry all at the same time. It can be found on Amazon or any other place where you buy books. Welcome, Tally, to the Interlude Podcast. I'm really excited to have you joining me today. Can you start by introducing yourself? So my name is Tali Lando. I am a pediatric uh, otolaryngologist, and I practice in Westchester, New York, and I live in Westchester as well. Can you talk a little bit about how you were diagnosed with breast cancer? So I, my third daughter, Mila, was born prematurely. And it was really strange, at least according to my OBGYN, because it's not that common to have severe preeclampsia, apparently, with your third child. Um, that what you're like, I wasn't that much older and from the same father. But when I was 34 weeks pregnant with no symptoms that I knew anything about, um, I came in at the end of the day for my just routine checkup, and my blood pressure was 190 over 100. And ultimately, um, they didn't induce me right away, but I ended up by the next day, I had severe proteinuria and they were worried about eclampsia. And so I delivered her. So she was IUGR. Um, Again, none of this was really known until that night because I didn't have a routine ultrasound after my 20 week anatomy scan and no one really commented on any other problem. Sometimes my patients would tell me that I looked rather small, but I thought it was a compliment. Of course. (laughs) And um, yeah, so I thought that was great. I didn't gain as much weight as I had previously. Um, And so she was born prematurely. Then she was in the NICU for two months. And she finally came home in like uh, end of March of 2013. And that then three months later, my father, who I was extremely close with and who was in perfect health and the, you know, CTO of a major telecom company had word finding difficulties and basically ended up having a a malignant brain tumor, a glioblastoma. So the following week he had brain surgery and the night before his surgery, I was just sitting in my room watching television because I couldn't sleep and I just accidentally brushed my right hand against my left chest and it was really late it was maybe two o'clock in the morning so I thought I immediately felt a large hard mass that should not have been there and I really thought I might be dreaming because it was just the stress and it was late and it just seems so absurd to have a problem when all this was going on. I mean, it was really, I'm the only doctor in my family. So I was taking the 
lead on keeping everybody else together for my father and my father was relying on me and again he was doing really well at that point but um so that that is how i found my my breast cancer and i didn't even say anything to anyone i didn't say anything to my husband because i just thought he's not a doctor i didn't want him to freak out and i didn't think there was a purpose in saying anything until i really knew what the problem was although i am a head and neck surgeon and i know what cancer feels like so the next day i had a full day in the or and so when i went in in the morning i called at when at nine o'clock when the, the breast radiologist from my institution's office opened i just called him and i just briefly told him my story of course he thought well you just had a baby so unlikely to be breast cancer but he didn't blow me off he said I want to see you and he actually kept all of his staff open and he kept his office open and he kept his staff there so that I could come after my OR was done that same day. I really was couldn't wait. Um, I know a lot of people wait a lot, lot longer, but um, it was very nice of him. And when I got there, he had me do an ultrasound um, where there was clearly a mass and then a mammogram right after that. And within a really short period of time, this is, I still hadn't told anyone anything. I hadn't told my husband, you know, he just thought I'm still operating. I didn't, he doesn't check what time it is and wonder why I'm not home. And I went, you know, into the office for him to tell me what he saw. And it was like clearly invasive breast cancer. It was straight out of the textbook, microcalcifications, there was a big mass and no hope of like a DCIS, you know, this is still stage zero or something like that. And he offered to do a biopsy right then, which he did do. And so, you know, within that day, I, I realized I have breast cancer and now I have to go and tell everybody and that was, you know, that's how I found it. I, I'm really, really lucky because my best friend from medical school, which I talk a lot about in the book, just how weird life can be, but she became a breast radiologist. So I actually texted her the images from the waiting room, again, before I talked to anybody else. And she looked at them and, you know, we both knew what it was. It wasn't really, at that point, it still seemed like maybe not that bad, but definitely invasive cancer. So you knew and you had a suspicion as to what it was. And I'm curious, right? So a lot of times doctors, and you know this, will say, oh, it could be benign. It could be don't worry until you have the results. Now being in that position, would you have wanted someone to say that to you? Or did you appreciate the honesty that, you know, this is most likely the real thing? I think that maybe it's hard for me to say because there wasn't a haziness, you know, very often you really aren't sure. Um, he seemed pretty sure that this was not just, again, like a, like a pre-cancer type of thing. I, I think I did appreciate the honesty. I really think that waiting for the truth and is harder than dealing with the truth. At least, you know, it's like once you have the truth, you can at least go into action mode. Until you know the truth, you're just in fear. Exactly. Now you have a, you can make a plan. You can start the next steps. So how did you tell your family in light of everything going on with your father at that time? It was so hard. I basically avoided telling. Uh, I told my husband, obviously, because I had to tell him. 
And with him, I just ripped it off like a Band-Aid. There was no way to cushion it. And it was so, to me, the whole thing was so absurd. I mean, obviously, I was scared and crying and upset, but it was just the absurdity of it all that I just had this premature baby who just got out of the NICU and my like beloved father has brain cancer and I, I have no family history. Not that, you know, most breast cancer is not uh, genetic, but just I, I have a huge Ashkenazi family with lots of women. And it was like the thing I never was afraid of that got me. And so I just thought this is just <laughs> so ridiculous. So when I called my husband, I was the same way. I was driving home and I meant to wait until he got home and do it in person and I just couldn't. And I just said, you're never going to believe this, but I have cancer. I just couldn't think of any other way to say it, you know. Now, with my parents, I did not want to tell them. I just felt like, how can they have to deal with this? I am the only daughter. I'm like the prize doctor daughter. Um, So I waited until the night before my bilateral mastectomy. And I was almost going to do it without telling them. And I have three brothers. And my middle brother said you know, it's just not fair to them as parents. It, it's like that he thought it was just not respecting them as human beings that they can, they need to know this. I can't go under general anesthesia with a, for a major surgery and not even have told them. So I live in, like I said, I live in Westchester and they live in Jersey. And I drove out to their house at eight o'clock the night before my first start surgery the next day and I just sat them down at their kitchen table and I said it said something like everything's going to be okay but I have breast cancer and I have surgery tomorrow and I just blurted it all out but it was if I could have avoided that I would have done it forever you know what about your children they were little at the time they were really little so that is something I didn't have to deal with. I dealt with it a lot. I deal with it a lot now as they're much more mature in terms of what to explain to them. But at the time I had a, you know, five and a half month old and a two year old and a four year old. So I didn't, I really didn't deal with, with explaining things to them in advance. I definitely did it afterwards. Um, meaning I didn't, like, what are you going to do with a two-year-old? Prepare that you're going into the hospital. I didn't even, and I really didn't do it with my four-year-old either because I didn't think that it was going to help her to know that mommy is having surgery and she's not going to come home tonight. And and then even I did stay at my parents' house for a couple days to recuperate because my kids were so young and I felt overwhelmed. Um, and I didn't give them a heads up about that. I just really, you know, you're dealing more with practical things when your kids are that young, like mommy's not going to carry you and that's crazy to them right like Mm -hmm. you're two and your four-year-old they don't even understand what that means don't yank mommy's arm every five seconds (laughs) don't jump on mommy's belly (laughs) and Um, what made you decide to have the bilateral mastectomy can you talk about your decision and reconstruction options so I really only had findings in my left side um, and I, at that point, I'm trying to think of when I had the genetics done. Um, but I did know at some point that I did not have the BRCA gene. So I didn't have a particular risk of the contralateral side, but I just could not wait for the other shoe to drop. For me, I didn't really think about it that hard. And I honestly, I don't think I understood the implications of a bilateral mastectomy versus unilateral. 
So that might have played a role, meaning, you know, there's a lot of things that really no one explains to you about loss of sensation of your entire chest area, which maybe is a little bit different if you only lose it on one side in terms of, you know, sexual activity afterwards and just body image. Um, but to me, I just was like, I don't ever, ever want to worry about a mammogram again. I just want to be done. And what kind of reconstructions did you decide to do? So I always tell people when they ask me, um, you know, your I think your reconstruction depends a lot on the plastic surgeon that you choose. And what is best is often what is best in the hands of your particular plastic surgeon. And so I was definitely influenced by that. The way that I ended up, the person that did my reconstruction is Dr. Lloyd Gale. And I actually, when I was an intern, he was the attending at Cornell for breast. And so I'd known him forever. And my roommate, um, who became a plastic surgeon, my roommate from medical school, she also had done a fellowship and rotated under him. And she was a huge fan. And he really was more traditional with, uh, he didn't do a lot of the newer flaps, but he felt that I was too thin. It's like, I joke about it in my book, but it's like the only time in your life when like being thin is actually a disadvantage. Um, But he thought that I was way too thin to be happy with a flap that would come from my belly. And so that I wouldn't get the volume, not that I have huge breasts, but that I wouldn't get the volume that I would want. So he really recommended more of the the expander to implant route. He really didn't go deep into the other deep flaps or whatever, you know. Um, and I and I do think that would have been a different conversation depending on who I went to see because I know a lot of people now these days really are very happy with the one step process. Um, it's a long process, the tissue expansion, and then you do have implants for the rest of your life that you have to deal with. So, but for me, it was kind of like black and white, I think. And, you know, you mentioned deciding who was going to do your surgery. You know, New York City is saturated with surgeons, oncologists, plastic surgeons, and you're in medicine, so you know a little bit more about this than the lay person. How did you decide? How did you kind of comb through all these amazing doctors to pick who was going to do your case? So for my situation, again, it was really had to do with Natalie, my my best friend from medical school, who is this breast radiologist. So she, so I live all the way in Westchester. She is a breast radiologist at Maimonides. It's like the most inconvenient place in the world to ever want to have something done that requires tons of follow-up over the course of years. But, you know, I was just, it was a different, it was very, very, very hard for me as a surgeon and a doctor to become the patient, like really suddenly and be super vulnerable and also be treated just like every other patient. I really, really struggled with that. My whole sense of identity was just being suddenly called into question. And so Natalie said to me, okay, listen, I want you to come out and I want you to meet the team at Maimonides and you absolutely should feel no pressure to go with them, but I trust them. So I want you to get an opinion there. So that's why I went all the way out to Maimonides. And I will tell you one other thing that's just a kind of weird twist in my story. So I had an ultrasound um, of my axilla, of my armpit, when I had that initial ultrasound and the the mammogram that first day. Um, The ultrasound of my armpit was read as completely normal. And that would have been the end of it, except for like a central node biopsy at at Mm -hmm. surgery. 
Natalie repeated all of the imaging when I went out to Maimonides, mainly because she just doesn't trust anyone except for herself. <laughs> and like all um, doctors do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think she really thought she was going to find anything different, but she did. So there was a lymph node, and she, she said very candidly that she's like, I don't know if you were not my friend, if I would have thought that this lymph node was abnormal. It was not by strict criterion an abnormal lymph node. Um, and something just bothered her about it, just this look of it without the objective criterion being abnormal. And so she did a biopsy in her office of the lymph node and it came back positive. Mm. And then the game changed, first of all, because then it was, first of all, the stage was automatically gonna be different. And second of all, instead of having a sentinel node, I was having a comprehensive lymph node dissection. And actually she really only thought it was that one lymph node. My, even my MRI was normal. Supposedly, you know, like just showed the mass, but nothing in the axilla, which it's supposed to be pretty sensitive for. Um, so anyway, that's why I went out and saw her and she repeated the imaging. And then Dr. Gale, who when I was an intern was working at Cornell, but a lot of these people, as you know, between New York, and New Jersey, and you know, they're just shuffling around the same quality people. So the name's not always so important. Um, and Dr. Gale was had come join the Maimonides team. He does like half his work in Manhattan and half his work out, out in Maimonides. And uh, the other um, breast oncologist there, he also was like used to be at Maimonides. So it was just like the same type of people. And there was Natalie, like my best friend, right there on the team. And so I did do what you're supposed to do after meeting them. I ran around and got all these recommendations of other surgeons. But at the end of the day, I just, my gut, I wanted to go with the Maimonides team because probably of like my direct connection and that's how I chose. And otherwise I, it's very overwhelming. And also people, it's not even like the personalities are different, but the options that they're presenting are different. It's, I went to Sloan Kettering. Um, one other interesting thing is that originally my surgery was a nipple sparing mastectomy. Um, well, obviously nipple sparing on the side that did not have cancer and then also nipple sparing on the left-hand side because on all the imaging, the tumor looked distinct from the nipple and even intraoperatively, it looked distinct. Um, when I went to Sloan Kettering, Dr. Alexandra Heert, she said, I would, I want to do, I want to take the nipple. And I got freaked out by that because I thought, no, I, I want to have my nipple. If someone's giving me an option, someone I trust, you know, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to go with too aggressive. I thought like I was already being aggressive, right? Because I was doing the other side. Um, and guess what happened in the end? I had to go back. Mm -hmm. Because the biopsy of the areola, or no, it was maybe like the ducts, I guess, whatever the biopsy came back positive. And it honestly was really, <laughs> like all things, harder to go back and have to take it after I thought I had it. Um, but, it, it, you know, the result was basically the same in the end. And how was the recovery from the mastectomy? I had a really bad recovery. And I, I really, over the course of writing my book, I have, you know, you become the person that a lot, even though I'm not an oncologist or a breast surgeon, just every single one of my friends who has a newly diagnosed young friend of theirs, they call me. And 
I just had a terrible recovery, so I'm always afraid for other people, and I feel like they, they never have as bad of an experience as I did, but I felt like I got hit by a truck. I really did. I thought it was super tough. One thing that I feel so strongly about is that if, um, if you have young children and you have any possibility to just be away, you know, for at least three to five days so that you're not being, like, climbed on and jumped on, um, you know, I know it's not a possibility for everybody, but it's like, you know, it, it really makes a huge difference. I didn't want to be around anybody. I, I didn't do well with the pain and I ended up, um, having as kind of a secondary issue from the narcotics where I went into complete, um, like not just constipation, but it was like a complete shutdown. And so I ended up with some secondary problems with, with the narcotic use, and then I eventually peeled myself off the narcotics, but I really, really had a tough time, and I don't know, I do feel like when I talk to people who have a unilateral mastectomy, it is a huge difference in the recovery. Would you, do you, would you agree with that? No, I do. I think the recovery from, just from my experience in talking to women, the recovery from a bilateral mastectomy is so much harder. But yeah. In reading your book, I kind of, and I actually said this to a patient today, I said, you have to read this book because <laughs> she, and she, the woman had had a mastectomy and all what you talk about, about the sensation and the discomfort and the itching and all of that, I don't really think we kind of talk about as much, you know, we, I know. we say, okay, you're recovering. That's great. And we kind of gloss over some of those details, but I really learned a lot from just reading what you went through. It's so true. The incisional issues, no one's going to mention it because, like, what what on earth is the alternative? You have no all. Exactly. You've got to get in there somehow, right? And so no one, when you talk about what's going to be tough and they talk about the drains and they maybe have a little mention of the loss of sensation, but you don't even know what that means. You think, okay, well, I'm going to lose sensation. They say maybe some will come back, maybe it won't. Again, initially I thought I was going to keep my nipples, so I thought, uh, you know, maybe I will have some sensation recovery, but the itching thing, it's crazy. It's, it was really miserable. And it's actually one of the things that bothers me to this day, but it was much worse back then because the, I have this whole chapter about the unscratchable itch, but it's all I could ever think about was you're really, really, really itchy and you can't feel the skin. So you cannot scratch it. And it's this most it seems so minor when you're talking about cancer and chemo and radiation, but it will drive you nuts. And I remember I did a reading of my book one time, and of course, like the women who had gone through it, that was the thing they came up to talk to me about. They're like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one because no one ever, ever mentions it. And that was kind of my point was that I felt that even as a surgeon and even as a very informed person with, who was really plugged in, I kept running into things that were maybe more minor, um, but that but that I wasn't expecting. I knew nothing about, and I was always like googling in the middle of the night. Like, is is this Just never normal? a good idea? <laughs> yeah. And so you mentioned chemo and radiation. So you, can you talk about that experience? So um, you know, again, I had a. I was lucky in the sense that I had a estrogen, progesterone, HER2 new negative, I mean positive ERPR and negative HER2 new. So the chemo was a standard cocktail. It wasn't like there were multiple options presented to me. Um, that's something that I, you know, I started at Sloan Kettering like many people do in the New York area. 
because they think it's the Mecca, but ultimately it was the exact same chemotherapy. And so that seemed insane. After I went in there once or twice, I'm like, I am not doing this anymore so far and such a pain and there's nowhere to park. Um, and so chemo was also tough. I, I am a, um, I'm super nauseous. That's like actually been my biggest medical problem my whole life. I love to scuba dive and I get so sick on the boat that I have to like vomit when I get into the water. So being constantly nauseous was really horrible for me. And it's so much better than it used to be because there are such better anti-nausea medications and people do do, you know, I mean, I think it's night and day from how it, how it was previously. But even that, um, I just felt like the AC part of, you know, everyone says it's the red devil. It just, it just saps all your lifeblood out of you. It's like being poisoned. <laughs> and I just woke up every day and all I dreamed about was just, feeling like myself again because you're just all the you all the drive all the the thing that gets you going it's really taken away from you even if you can function you know um the taxol was easier but I think you know again that's only like in comparison to the worst part at the beginning I um the one thing I didn't do which was the only time I went against medical advice, I guess, during the surgical part was I did not get a port. There's a lot of pressure to get a port. It is much better for access. Um, you do pay the price. That means you have to get stuck every single time. And my veins were destroyed on that side. So I think they're starting to come back to some degree, but you really are like, uh, you have to get a lot of blood draws even going forward. Mm -hmm. And I literally had no veins and I was someone that you could like get an IV from a mile away. So I know I didn't start off that way really burns your veins. Um, and also if you get a unilateral lymph node dissection, then you only have act. Now you only have the option of the one side that has terrible veins. And like, so when I would go for just follow up blood work afterwards, it's like, it took, the best of the best phlebotomist trying 10 million times with heat packs, you know, to get blood. Why did you decide not to do the port? Because that does come up a lot. And a lot of people feel like they just don't want another procedure at that point. But what was your decision for that? So I absolutely did not care about the procedure element because I think as a surgeon, you know, I'm so like the idea of anesthesia, which is what a lot of people are bothered by. I'm like, yes, yeah, that's what I do all day long. I'm not an anesthesiologist, but it's like part of, for me to function, someone needs an anesthetic. So I didn't mind that. Um, what I minded was that I felt like all these body changes were happening, right? Um, and the, my favorite, you don't see it from what I'm wearing right now, but like traditionally my favorite part of my body was my neckline. And the idea of having a scar that was potentially going to be right under my clavicle, that just really bothered me. And it's so vain because it's weird because I wasn't vain in other ways about it. Um, I don't even know. In hindsight, I think it's just that women should maybe know that it is a choice. And did you work during chemotherapy? So, okay. I feel like kind of a loser these days sometimes when I talk to these unbelievable women that work through chemotherapy. I was nowhere near functional enough to do my job. You know, I, I think that's important. It's to do your job. 
Right. It's not to do a different job. It is. It is. I mean, I'm not like, you know, doing heavy labor in my job, but I work with kids. If you do pediatric ENT, you basically spend your entire day the medical part of it when you're not in the OR, literally like contorting your body because you have a screaming, squirmy kid that does not want you to do everything you need to do. You need to check their ears. You need to clean out wax. You need to scope them. And they don't want you to do any of those things. So you are like always twisted and turned and uncomfortable. And it's like very physical um, type of job really is, even though, you know, and you're on, and I'm always on my feet. Um, and I just was like, there's no way I can be the right type of doctor for these patients that, you know, I mean, some of it was also selfish cause I just, it was hard for me to get going, like just function, let alone take care of other patients. And I didn't know how to do it. Like I'm not a medical doctor. So the purpose in seeing patients when you're an ENT is that then if they need surgery, you can take care of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I could have seen patients maybe and not operated, but then what was I supposed to do with them? Exactly. I mean, I could give them to my partners, but it seems kind of silly to me. And it was the same thing with the operating room. Um, you know, for the most part, I do not do long, really, you know, five, 10 hour surgeries. I do very, very short surgeries that um, I, I've done so many thousands of times. I maybe don't have to be at my absolute best. But still, like, do I even want to be compromised to any little degree? Even if I'm doing ear tubes on another patient, I didn't feel like that was the right thing. Um, I maybe could have considered it more towards the taxol part, but I think I had already kind of just said, okay, I'm not going to go back to, to working and surgery during, during uh, chemo. And I went back the day I started radiation. And it was still, like, it's exhausting radiation, right? It just, it's not, it doesn't make you nauseous, but you're just so tired. And so I always, like, I would basically go to radiation, go to my office, and when I got home at night, I just, like, passed out. It's like I could get through the day with, like, all my muster, but there was nothing left after that. So it's hard. I mean, it's really hard being a doctor and it's really hard being a mom. And so being a doctor mom is really hard. And then now you're dealing with all this. Like, how did that work? How did that affect your kids, your marriage, your family? You know, I really was a delinquent mom for that period of time. There's no other way to say it. I, I think part of it is that I was already a female surgeon, right? So I had childcare in place. It, you know, I didn't have to figure out like what was going to happen during the same hours where I usually would not be there. Mm-hmm. So my nanny at the time, I mean, she didn't sign up for this, but she just really kept, I just needed them to be alive. Right. I need, I, they were very young, you know, they weren't teenagers who could be failing out of school. So I needed them to be cared for and clean and fed. And a lot of that was already on autopilot. And so I don't think I was a great mother. I mean, Mila was, I don't remember Mila's life, my youngest. I don't even have a memory of it from when I was probably started surgery when she was like five and a half months old until three and a half months later. Like I've thought about it sometimes and I can't even recreate it. Now, we actually have, she was a horrible, horrible refluxy baby that did not sleep. So 
No nanny was dealing with that. She was up, I, I kid you not, every hour and a half, two hours. So that part of it, um, my husband and I, it was like, who's more desperate? Who's <laughs> Who is able to physically change her diaper and feed her and deal with her in the middle of the night? So we still did that. I have no idea how. You know, it's like mm-hmm. fight or flight type just of do stuff. It, yeah. mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Like she's screaming her head off. You can't just leave her yeah. there. And it, it was, it just, I think it took a toll in every single way. I, I think I thought my husband was just this amazing dealing with it all. You know, he crashed when I came back up for air. And I think that that's not that uncommon, right? Like when you're in the moment, like he knew how to step it up. Um, and he was so supportive and he was seemingly not scared. Although I think that was just a delusion of mine. He just didn't show it to me. So he wasn't like crying to me every night. When I cried, he didn't like just start crying, even if he wanted to, right? But when I finished chemo, that's when he kind of spiraled, I think, because he didn't have to hold anyone up anymore. And you can't keep it together all the time. It just, it's impossible. Yeah. And the damage to your marriage, I think my feeling is that a lot of it is much more long-term because... Your relationship with your body, or at least in my case, my relationship with my body became such a negative thing that it never had been before. Um, You know, one of the things when you get your bilateral mastectomy and then you finally get your implants is that you actually look pretty damn good, right? Mm -hmm. In clothing, you might look much better than you did before because you were, you know, you had three kids, you breastfed them, you had saggy little boobs that were just barely (laughs) hanging there. And and now you have this perkier... um, better version of yourself in the perception of other people and they're like you look so good in your cute little haircut and your perky boobs or fake boobs you know and um but you don't feel that way and that uh I didn't I I I think we do that's another like whole entire area that we just don't deal with at all there's no way for I mean I know the reality for oncologists, just like for all of us, right? You don't have an hour and a half with every single patient Mm -hmm. to touch on every single, you know, potential emotional and psychological problem that they're going to have. You barely have time to, you know, deal with the key things. And you kind of hope that if you're in a center that has social work or, you know, or groups where there's like help groups or, you know, support groups, I mean, that someone else is going to kind of deal with all that other stuff. But it's, um, you know, I just kind of put my blinders on and went back to work. And um, I feel like the repercussions of that are really long lasting. Has it gotten better? Or what did you do to make it better? So here's the funny thing, which, so your kids, right? The one great thing about little kids is that they were not scared of mommy with her big giant scars and no nipples, right? Um, So I, and my I don't know what your kids are like or what their ages are, but my kids do not think that privacy is a thing. Yep, no, neither, neither do mine. (laughs) I really think that the fact that my kids were just barging in on me all the time, looking at my body that I actually was very uncomfortable with, and I'll talk a little bit about how, like, I the nipple reconstruction thing actually still hasn't happened all these years later. So that was, it was still, like, these big, giant scars. Um, 
but then they were like so normal about it, right? So you start to become more normal about it and you start to be able to look at yourself in the mirror. They don't really think anything strange until they get to the age where they start to notice that they have nipples and they don't have boobs yet, even now. But, uh, you know, so they, they didn't think there was a striking difference. Um, with my husband, it was a lot different. Uh, I, I wasn't okay. Um, I think relationships are very, very different. There are some men, when women go through something like this, that are very much seeing every stage of it. Maybe that's good for them because it helps them, you know, wrap their head around it. Maybe the woman needs needs that kind of support. I had an attitude, not because I think I'm right, but I was like, I don't, I, I want him to see the finished product. I had this thought in my head, right? Why do I need him to see the phases? Because I felt like it will be burned into his memory. So if you see your wife or any, you know, partner you're with and they have this aesthetic and you're sexually attracted to that aesthetic, is seeing the tissue expander or drains coming out of this space that was once a sexual organ um, gonna forever be in your mind and and you'll never find it sexy again I, I'm not saying I was so uh, it was like I was obsessed with him finding me sexy I just felt like why do I need him to see this stage and that's how I felt like at the drain stage okay and then I kind of had the same thought for the expander stage. Why not just have him see the implant stage? You know, why does he have to see this boxy thing? Um, and, you know, I did a lot of things that were what I needed, like never being fully naked, wearing tank tops. I mean, there's lots of options of ways you can still almost keep it private even within a, a relationship um and again i'm not saying any of this is like the correct way to be or that, that that's the healthiest way to be but but it for me it was i needed to get there like really gradually like over time when i accepted things um and uh that you know so i think i think i'm kind of different than a lot of people in that way i think that's really interesting because i always wonder so you know you'll see a husband and wife in the exam room together and a lot of times the woman will ask her partner to step out and i kind of always mm -hmm. wondered about that so thank you for kind of talking about that because that makes a lot of sense and i've never really thought about it like that because you're probably like why would they have to step out when they see them all the time but exactly you know but they don't that makes sense and i, I think to want to preserve what you once had is really important. So that that's a, that's a good way of thinking about it. I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about two uh, really interesting topics. One about being a doctor and becoming a patient, and then also about your book. Okay. So go ahead. I, I do think that there's, you know, being a doctor and then maybe to a certain degree, when you're a surgeon, I mean, in the operating room, for example, you know, you are in charge. You, everyone else is there. They, they all have extremely important functions. But it's like where I was most in control of my life, you know, because at home I wasn't necessarily. But having flipping to being the patient was, like I said, it was a complete crisis of my identity because it's a, as you know, it's like a crazy long road to become mm -hmm. a doctor or a surgeon. And I was still really young. I was only a couple of years out of fellowship. Um, and I just felt completely vulnerable and it made me very 
unhappy. Um, and I think that Natalie saved me from a lot of the doctor becoming the patient in a lot of small ways, but I will forever be grateful to her because let's say when I would get to the waiting room, she would whisk me out of there and she would let me sit in her office. And um, I needed that for me to still feel like I was preserving my sense of self, especially because I wasn't working at that point. So I did a lot of feeling, who am I if not this? And it's not that I, I know I can answer that question. And I was, I was a mother and I was a wife and all these things, but this was, you know, this was the goal I worked for for 12 years. And um, I never really got comfortable being the patient for a long time. I think eventually though, um, you just start to, sometimes it's nice to let go and like let other people take care of you. Um, I, I, I think it was in little ways, like people had so much trouble getting, let's say blood for me that sometimes I would just take my own blood because it was so painful to watch them be nervous, sticking me on my, like, just do it. I think that I think that in the long run, I got this really amazing insight into a lot of the fear that it's hard to understand when you're when you're a surgeon. You're like, yeah, you're afraid of anesthesia, but how else am I going to do a surgery without anesthesia? You know, that's people's number one fear. And to me, it always seemed a little absurd, the, the fears that people have, the standard fear, right? You're going to wake up in the middle of surgery, you're going to feel it, and no one will hear you scream. Um, I think that that's the number one thing is waking up in the middle of your own surgery or not waking up from your surgery. And um, you're just completely out. You have no idea, you have no consciousness. And then to actually feel this, to like, I felt that way. You know, I, I felt, oh my God, I'm going to be naked on the operating table. Even though if a patient told me, yeah, of course you're going to be naked, but nobody looks at you that way. We don't look at you like a sexual being, you know, don't worry about it. Like you just kind of shrug it off. Right. Mm -hmm. And here I was feeling that way. And so now I, I just, I do think it's helpful for me to really deeply understand what my patients, mostly it's their families because I do pediatrics. So it's not the patients themselves, except for the teenagers. Um, I, I, I just, I get their fears. I think, I think I can relate better to them. Um, and I think in the long run, it was a positive to, to be the patient, but, um, I wanted to get out of that role, like as soon as possible when I was going through it. Now, did you tell your patients that you were going through cancer treatment or had gone through cancer treatment? So when I first got back, I still had no hair. Um, so I think it was painfully obvious. Um, but no one's like comfortable asking you. Um, it's more, I think. Uh, it took me a long time to get comfortable, but the book was obviously this huge thing. I mean, I, I started writing this book the day that the first thing happened. Um, and it's, it's, you know, a lot of people will go through this major life experience and then they decide they want to write about it. I wanted to write and did write since I was a little girl. Like this was always my thing. I actually never thought it'd be a a doctor. I always thought I'd be a writer um, when I was little and young, even young, like seven. I was that kid always writing stories and poems. And, um, and I always wanted to write a book. It was like this dream of mine, but I didn't have the, the subject matter. Um, 
clearly I wish this wasn't the way that I got the subject matter. Um, but so, what, like I said, the thing that made me start putting, putting down these vignettes of experiences was that I would just be like, this is ridiculous. I mean, this is just totally ridiculous. I've got to write this down because is anyone else going through this? And it would, those were a lot of the events that initially, um, I really did write it in these little bites. And I had this idea in the back of my head that if it ever, if I ever finished it, it would be for people like me who are always sitting in waiting rooms. You're, you spend all this time in waiting rooms. So like, you don't want to read a big heavy book. You want to read something that you can take a piece of and almost like a magazine in a way, um, learn something from it, laugh from it, you know, cry from it. And then you don't have to pick it up again. It's kind of, uh, you know, it's self-standing each chapter. And so that's kind of how it started, you know, and it, and all, everyone always asked me like, oh, but wasn't it cathartic? Did you, you know, yes, all those things are true. It was cathartic. It gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me an outlet because I think I bottled a lot of stuff inside. Um, but ultimately I really, I, um, I basically wrote the whole time and then I went back to work and I was like, as I told you, I had nothing left to give, like nothing. So the book just sat on my computer in this very unbaked form. The story wasn't done. Um, and I had put hundreds of hours into it, but I just never thought it would go anywhere without me taking off work again for like a year <laughs> to write a book, right? Which is not gonna happen. Um, and then, and I talk about this in the book, but basically in my residency, it's a really small residency in ENT. Most of the time there's about three people per year. So my chief resident, Vicki, she, this is now, you know, fast forward two years, she calls me. She had a mammogram. It was a screening mammogram. They found something. So we start going down this road, you know. Obviously, it was worse than that initial phone call, although she's done great in the long run. And as I start to talk to her, I'm, I'm thinking, I feel like I should send her like the, the chapter in the book where I dealt with this. And, and it basically just rejuvenated my desire to finish the story. And so it was a really big hiatus where I, I and then I, um, so this, my story kept evolving. I mean, it went on for a really long time. I had, you know, a lot of reconstruction steps because I needed a lot of fat grafting. I had, not the best cosmetic result, nothing horrible. Although at one point they really thought that I might even need a flap mm -hmm. to cover. I had long-term radiation changes and my skin was so thin that you could 100% feel the button of the implant. And my plastic surgeon was really worried it was gonna get exposed. Um, and so I, I had no radiation problems when it was occurring. My short-term radiation, it looked like nothing happened. I thought that they maybe didn't turn the machine on, but the long-term was not great. Um, and again, I think that apparently I'm not fatty enough uh, in that area. Um, and so anyway, so, so okay, then I, I, I basically finished my story. But after all of that, I think, okay, if I'm ever going to have this book be the my dream was that it was the thing that you reach for when your sister's diagnosed, when your friend's diagnosed, when your cousin's diagnosed, when your coworker's diagnosed and give it to them. And it could be like a self-contained thing. Um, I'm not saying it has every piece of medical information that would be crazy, but 
for most people's journey, not everybody's. Um, it, it's like I kind of ended up slipping, I mean, not slipping, I ended up dealing with a lot of the things that can possibly happen to you. Um, I didn't have neutropenia, I didn't have like horrible complications, but I had enough of the things that I was like, this is going to cover most of people's bases. Um, and I just felt, so then I felt really obligated to get the medical knowledge and information in there, but palatably and limited, you know, you have to, it's not like an oncologist, but it really, I felt like that was the trick was I am still a doctor and people are still going to read this a little bit different than just a, a memoir. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I really tried to round out the story. Like initially I hadn't thought about talking about tamoxifen so much, but I, but that's a big piece, you know, of the long term experience. And so that, so, you know, it took another year of just, I mean, I was crazy. I was like, <laughs> I was writing like whenever I'd finish a patient, if there was a five minute lull, I would write. If I would sit, I would lie in bed. You know, when you put your kids to bed and you're lying there staring at the ceiling for like an hour until their breathing slows down. Um, instead of, instead of like being annoyed, I would be like lying on the bed with my computer on my chest. Um, and I really like, I just like got really absorbed in it to finish it, to be a product that I could be really proud of. And that I thought that it was worthy of other people. And, um, and then it was like done and well, you know, it's been, it's just a really, really saturated field, right? Like so many people mm -hmm. have written about the breast cancer experience. It's an extremely common cancer. And then a lot of people, you know, it's life defining. So I decided to self-publish it. That was really like what I came down to. I, I thought, yes, maybe I could find someone that could believe in this the way that I do or understand why the fact that being told from a doctor-patient perspective and it's really raw and funny that there was something different about it, but to try to convince some publisher that doesn't know me, I felt like it was impossible. And so that is really, uh, so I just said, I'm, I'm just doing it this way. And I had this dream or this belief that in this day and age, like you and I was harnessing social media, like you, why can't you just do it on your own? Like, why can't you just take something that you believe in and make, make it, you know, reach a wider audience? And that was, you know, I'm still on this quest because I, I haven't hit that, you know, celebrity that's like, hey, everyone's got to read this book. Um, it's like chipping away on a much more local level of reaching individuals and oncologists. I mean, really what my dream is, is um, one really unintended consequence of the book that I've been really, really excited about is kind of like what you said. It's the doctors. I really realized over time is that the the people that I really absolutely want to reach as an audience are oncologists and breast surgeons and plastic surgeons who I think reading a book about the experience told by a physician makes them really get it and have, like you said before, an insight that is very different and reaches you in a different way than maybe being told just by a patient. Um, like there's, this was probably one of my favorite things that happened was there's a pediatric neurosurgeon in my hospital. And I, I, you know, collaborated on a lot of patients with him, like craniofacial patients. And 
he called me one day not so long ago and he said, you know, this is nothing to do with a patient, but I just want to tell you that I finished your book. And I thought, oh my God, like most male surgeons are not reading a book about nipple reconstruction of someone that they actually know. Um, and obviously I felt a little like, oh my God, should I be embarrassed? But um, he said that his sister-in-law was in the middle of dealing with ovary, a new diagnosis of ovarian cancer. And his mother simultaneously, kind of similar to me and my father, um, had a recurrence of a lymphoma. And he said, for whatever reason, reading the book spoke to him and helped him in a way because I guess he's like, I see you every day and I see you kind of back to this fully functional human. And so like it made him believe that these people in his life could get to the other side, even though the cancer experience was such a different cancer. And believe it or not, I've had a bunch of men. I feel like that's like my biggest compliment, like husbands, mm -hmm. you know, because I don't, I, my husband, I didn't tell him any of this stuff. Like he'd have to read the book too, because it's the stuff that you, a lot of it is like what you keep internal. Um, and so if you can give it to like the spouse, it's like they could understand, you know, cause most of the people are like, you seem fine back to life, you know, you're all good and you don't know what's going on. Well, and that's why, I mean, I, I think that's so true. And that's why I started the podcast, because we don't talk about any of that stuff. And reading the book, I mean, I think it's fantastic. And I think you really do an incredible job of just actually telling the truth. This is what it's like. It's And it's it's raw and it's honest. And um, it's what people kind of want to know about. Um, but I, I, I mean, Gary, like I had, I had some people, you know, I've actually had some people ask me like, oh, should I buy this? Like my friend just got diagnosed. Should I buy it? And I actually say no, because I really think that before you're ready, unless you're that person, like there are some people, they just like need to know everything. Right. But I feel like until you, like, if you're just like, they just found something wrong, you know, and you don't know, this is way too much. Yes. And that's another thing that I did try to do that you can of course, like someone, um, you can read it like straight through. It's not a hard read. And a lot of my friends are like, I read it, I stayed up all night and I read it, but it's really meant for the patient to like, just read what's like relevant to where you're ready, you know? So don't jump ahead to dealing with fertility issues down the road when you're just trying to like be alive, you know? Um, and, you know, I, and like you said, it's just, there's, this is amazing what you're doing with this forum because I feel like you can now refer your patients to say, you know, maybe this, maybe you relate to this one woman's experience and you know, you can, exactly. this conversation can give them more insight than like anything that you can really give to them in, in, in a half an hour, you know, office visit. Exactly. And some people don't, um, some people are more private and support groups are not the right forum for them. Right. And what's good, I think, about the book is that it's also probably good to go back and read it when you're kind of at the end. And yep. it's validating that you're not the only one that had all these issues that, you know, had body image, you know, difficulties or had neutropenia or whatever the issue is that, you know, they are not alone in this. So what does it mean to self-publish a book? Like, do we just write a book and you're like, okay, I'm going to press publish on Amazon? Like, what does that mean? So, of course, I... 
figured all these things out with time. I didn't know anything beforehand, but, you know, it's become a very, it used to be like self-publishing was, you know, if you're, if you're like a really crappy writer, but you just think you're really great, but nobody else will publish you, you know, okay, you could self-publish and then your friends and your family have to read your book. Um, it's really changed a lot because unfortunately or fortunately, like the publishing world has really imploded. And so in order for a book to make money these days, it literally has to be a celebrity. It either has to be a celebrity um, or someone that's already been a bestseller. Like it's so rare for an unknown to be successful. And so all these companies, they got smart. Um, the one that I used, it's an offshoot of Simon and Schuster. So a lot of these major companies, you can do it on Amazon for sure, but another option is all these major companies. I think people, um, basically moonlight you know some of these uh editors and publishers for these subsidiaries and self-publishing means you pay to take you know your word document and make it into a product and it can have any level of involvement you can pay for editorial services you know it's almost like a like a sushi menu <laughs> of publishing but it ultimately means self-published means no one had to validate you, you know, you, you believed in it and you put the product out there. And the other thing is there's no book launch. There's no uh, publicist that's helping you. I mean, you're creating just a product. Um, I, I mean, obviously you, you can't be, you got to be smart about it. So you have to get an editor and you have to have multiple editors because you can't edit your own material uh, the way that someone else can. So um, I did hire an editor. It's, it's, it's kind of a money losing proposition for the most part. And that's, that's probably a big deterrent. Um, you have to lay out money to get this product out there. And you also can't, again, you can't skimp on editing. Um, because even just my editor, I mean, she was unbelievable. She, she's actually a mom from um, my kid's school. She, her son is in my daughter's class and she is, uh, she really wrote magazine journal articles. And she had never edited a book before. And it was a bit, it was a risk for both of us. But the one thing that I found really amazing was she just took personalized, you know, took this story. She's not a publisher that has a million other projects. And she helped me um, organize it, you know, into something tight that had a, a much better timeline than maybe my haphazard events. And, um, Actually, my mom and I, we, one time I sent my husband and the kids on like a ski trip and I just sat in New Jersey where my parents live, where my, my, my father used to live and where my mom lives in her kitchen for three days. I don't think I got dressed. Um, and that was like the 10th time, right? And just pouring over every word, perfecting it and tightening it and like streamlining the whole thing. So, you know, you could, treat, you could treat it like just, here's my book, I'm going to put it out there, or you can take it like super seriously. But self-publishing is, you're still, you know, you decided you were good enough to spend the money on. <laughs> we have to wrap up, but thank you so much for talking to me today and sharing your story. And I Absolutely. think a lot of people will benefit from it. And I'll link to the book so everyone can buy it because it is a really good book and I oh. really liked reading it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Tally Lando Aronoff. I think she is incredible, and I really hope you check out her book to get more information. 
I read it. I loved it. And I highly recommend it to all of you. Again, it's called Tell and Back, and you can find it on Amazon or any other place where you buy books. You can also find out more about Tally on her website at www.drtallyaronoff.com. She's also on Facebook and Instagram as Hell and Back Book. As always, I hope you continue to tune in every week to hear more incredible and inspiring stories. If you are loving the show, and I hope that you are, please take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts as that is the best way to grow the show. Thanks again, and I will see you all next week.